of Sticks and Stones by Rav Chanoch Waxman. At Memerivah, at the start of the 40th year of the Israelites' desert journey, God judged Moshe and Aharon. Immediately following Moshe's hitting of the rock, the miraculous flow of water and the people's quenching of their thirst, God declared the following to Moshe and Aharon. Since you did not believe in me, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land. Finding the actions and leadership of Moshe and Aharon wanting, God decrees that they would not lead the people any further. Like the generation they had redeemed from Egypt, they too would not enter the promised land. While God's judgment against Moshe and Aharon is clear and to the point, the rationale for the judgment seems far less transparent. Apparently, the events at Memorivah were intended to sanctify God in the eyes of the people, and such is the job of a leader of Israel. For their failure to do so, Moshe and Aaron are stripped of their roles. Yet what exactly constitutes the Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God, that they should have facilitated? Moreover, God utilizes the formulation of Lo Ha'emantem Bi, tentatively translated above as You did not believe in me, to describe the sin of Moshe and Aaron. Based upon God's previous description of Moshe as his Eved Ne'eman, his trusted servant, the term He'emantem, also based upon the stem Aleph Mem Nun, should probably be translated as trust rather than belief. In other words, God accuses Moshe of not placing trust in him. In fact, he accuses him of betrayal, both of God and by implication of his own identity as God's trusted servant. In point of fact, in referring to the sin of Moshe and Aharon on other occasions, God consistently uses language with a similar if not more extreme connotation. In the second-to-last communication of God to Moshe found in the Torah, God commands Moshe to ascend Mount Nebo for a glimpse of the land that he will not enter. As part of these instructions, God reviews the rationale for Moshe not entering the land, referring broadly to Moshe's failure to sanctify God and his transgression. The exact term used by the Torah to describe Moshe's sin is ma'al tembi. While this can constitute a general term for transgression or trespass, it also appears in the story of the sota, the unfaithful wife. In the latter context, it constitutes a technical term for breaking faith, betrayal, and adultery. In this light, God in fact accuses Moshe of something more than just run-of-the-mill transgression. He accuses him of a fundamental betrayal of the relationship. Finally, in perhaps the unkindest cut of all, in first instructing Moshe to ascend the mountain and see the land, God refers to the fact that Moshe rebelled against God at Memorivah. But of course, this is the term that Moshe used to describe the people's behavior at Memorivah. Before striking the rock, Moshe berated the people, prefacing his words with the phrase, Hear, you rebels! In God's eyes, it is Moshe and Aharon, not the people, who are the true rebels in the story. To put this together, in addition to alluding to some potential Kiddush Hashem Moshe and Aharon were supposed to perform, God variously views their actions at Memorivah as rebellion, breaking faith, and breakdown of the trust of Moshe in God. All of the harsh language, and of course the punishment itself, lead to the inevitable conclusion that the error of Moshe at Memorivah was astoundingly serious. But this constitutes the nub of the matter. All Moshe did was hit the rock. Not much else happened. In other words, what was the severe sin of Moshe at Memorivah? What about it justifies God's harsh words? What was the failure of trust? What was the betrayal? And what was the rebellion of Moshe? 
Turning our attention to the text itself should help us restructure the problem. The action unfolds along the following lines. Confronted with a lack of water, the people strive with Moshe. They complain that they would have been better off if they had already died, lament the fact that Moshe has brought them and their cattle to die in the desert, and declare that Moshe should never have brought them up from Egypt to a bad place lacking water. In response, God issues a multi-part and complex command which can be parsed into five distinct stages. He commands Moshe to 1. Take the stick 2. That he and Aharon should gather the community 3. To speak to the rock 4. To bring forth for them water and finally 5. To give the congregation and their flock water. At this point, the Torah reports Moshe's accomplishment of the divine command. And Moshe took the stick from in front of the Lord as God commanded him. And Moshe and Aharon gathered the congregation together before the rock. And Moshe said to the people, Hear, you rebels, should we bring forth water for you from the rock? And Moshe lifted up his hand, and he hit the rock twice with the stick. The water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their cattle as well. The first two stages of the command go without a hitch. Moshe takes the stick from in front of the Lord and gathers the community in front of the rock precisely as commanded. Emphasizing this point, the Torah inserts the phrase as God commanded in between the accomplishment of the first two command stages. But at this point, when it comes time to speak to the rock, stage three of the command, things begin to go awry. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe speaks to the people informing them that they are rebels and that they do not really deserve the water they are about to receive. Instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe smites the rock. Speaking to the people and smiting the rock were not commanded by God. Moshe has clearly disobeyed God's command. Nevertheless, we may well wonder whether the consequences are proportionate to the sin. After all, the people are rebels. As mentioned above, Moshe's disobedience is preceded by the people's claim that they would have been better off already having died. This complaint bears an eerie resemblance to the complaint of their ancestors 38 years earlier upon the hearing of the report of the spies. Like their forefathers, the people preferred death to a future under the leadership of Moshe. Identifying with the generation that left Egypt and preferring death to the leadership of Moshe surely constitutes an act of rebellion. Furthermore, the people refer to their preference for dying like their brothers in front of the Lord. While this may be a reference to the gradual death of the previous generation, it most probably constitutes a technical reference to the last group portrayed as dying in front of the Lord, the 250 members of Korach's assembly who stood before the Lord and were consumed by a fire that came out from the Lord. Likewise, the people query Moshe as to Lama Ha'elitanu, Why did you take us up from Egypt? For here in this place in the desert we will surely die. But these words echo the previous time in Sefer Bamidbar that someone questioned Moshe as to Lama Ha'elitanu, the complaint of Datan and Aviram. They too had questioned Moshe as to why he had taken them out of Egypt, bringing them to the desert to die. In this light, the brothers who have already died, referred to by the people, are most certainly none other than the rebel assembly of Korach and his cohorts. Once again, the people identify with a previous event, its generation and its rebellion. Moshe is correct. They are rebels. Moreover, we can identify another possible justification for Moshe's actions at Memeribah. Thirty-nine years previously, shortly after leaving Egypt at a place known as Rifidim, and later called Masa Umrivah, the children of Israel had complained for water. The story recounted in Sefer Shmot parallels the events of Memeribah in many ways.
In both cases, the people lack water. In both cases, the Torah describes the people as striving with Moshe, complaining as to Lama Elitanu, why have you brought us up, and bemoaning their impending death. Moreover, and most crucially, the solution in both cases involves a rock and a stick. At Masam Riva, God commanded Moshe to take his stick and smite a rock located at Chorev. As we should remember, in the story of Sefer Bamidbar and the events of Memriva, God commands Moshe to take the stick and speak to the rock. While the commands certainly differ, the common denominator seems to outweigh the differences. Both resolutions involve a stick and a rock. In this light, Moshe's actions, his sin of smiting the rock as opposed to speaking it, seem far less severe. Last time around, in near-identical circumstances, God commanded him to resolve the situation with a stick and a rock by smiting the rock. This time around, in response to God's command to resolve the situation with a stick and a rock solution, Moshe indeed does so. He repeats his actions at Masam Riva and smites the rock. While, admittedly, God had commanded him to speak to the rock, should Moshe really be held accountable for the difference? Is not a stick and rock solution a stick and rock solution? Both are miracles, and both provide water for the people. Turning back to Moshe's words at Memriva and the command-accomplishment relationship outlined earlier may provide some insight. As argued until now, both Moshe's statement that the people are rebels and his hitting as opposed to speaking to the rock can be either justified or explained. The people are rebellious, and Moshe had been previously commanded in near-identical circumstances to strike the rock. Yet this is not all that happens. In addition, and in clear contrast to the command of God, Moshe confronts the people with a rhetorical question, asking them whether Moshe and Aharon should bring forth water for you from the rock. Moshe means to imply, in line with the first half of his declaration accusing the people of rebellion, that the people do not deserve water. As far as he is concerned, they deserve to die. But this is in direct contradiction to God's command. As emphasized above, God had commanded Moshe, V'hotzeta lahem, that you should bring forth water for them. Yet as opposed to simply carrying out the word of God, Moshe questions the command, albeit indirectly. In rebuking the people, Moshe uses the same stem found in God's command, Yud Tzadi Aleph, meaning out or forth, to ask, Hanotzi, should we? But God has already stated that he should. Moreover, Moshe's reluctance seems to come to fruition in his actual accomplishment of the divine command. While God had commanded Vehotzeta, an active conjugation of the verb stem Yud Tzadi Aleph, implying personal action and involvement, the Torah informs us that upon Moshe's hitting of the rock, Vayotze, and much water came out. The switch to the passive tense reflects the lack of personal involvement of Moshe, of his being the cause of the emerging waters. Moshe smites the rock and the waters emerge, but he has not actively and willingly brought them forth. This emerging sense of questioning, reluctance, and disengagement is further strengthened by the last stage of the command accomplishment structure outlined above. God had commanded Moshe with the term vihishkita, literally meaning to water, in the sense that a shepherd waters his flock. This, of course, is the action he performed in saving the daughters of Yitro and their sheep. It is the original occupation that brought him to Choreb for the first time and his mission as leader. In a similar vein, shortly after the events at Memeriva, in entreating to God to appoint a replacement for him upon his death, Moshe entreats God that the children of Israel not be left like sheep that have no shepherd. In other words, God commands Moshe to practice the kind of leadership he knows so well, the management style he himself preaches. 
Not for naught does the command mention watering the people and their cattle, but in pointed contrast to the command of watering and its associated shepherding imagery, the corresponding response section utilizes a different term altogether, the term vatesht, meaning drink. It reports simply that the people drank. Moshe views the people as rebels. Moshe is reluctant. Moshe is certainly not watering this flock. To put this together, Moshe's primary sin is not so much the accusation of rebellion, the smiting of the rock, or even the reflexive repetition of the actions of 39 years previous. Rather, it is his overall attitude that comprises the problem. It is the factor which underlies the accusations, the smiting and the repetition. At Memorivah, Moshe fails not so much in precise fidelity to God's word as an Eved Ne'eman, but as a Ro'eh, as the shepherd of God's people. It is a failure, if but momentary, to deliver a certain kind of leadership. Realizing that the sin of Moshe and Aharon at Memorivah is primarily related to the type of leadership they provide brings us to a related point, back to the notion of Kiddush Hashem, God's oft-repeated statement that Moshe did not sanctify him in the eyes of the Israelites. Although not emphasized previously, while God sometimes states that Moshe lacked trust, sometimes accuses Moshe of breaking faith, and sometimes labels him a rebel, each and every one of God's recountings of the incident contains the Kiddush Hashem theme. This, in fact, the lack of sanctification of God's name, seems to be what lies behind God's wrath, and the real reason that Moshe is punished. To put our two points together, the problem at Memorivah is the lack of a certain kind of leadership. This, in turn, results in a failure to sanctify God's name and God's decree of Moshe and Aharon's fate. A crucial point made by the Rashbam regarding the context of the Memorivah narrative should help to further elaborate. In commenting on God's command to Moshe to take the stick, the Rashbam notes that the stick referred to has already been mentioned in Sefer Mamibar. It is the staff of Aharon placed in the sanctuary as a sign to the rebels. Based upon the echo of the title assigned to the rebels found in our parasha, the fact that before smiting the rock, Moshe holds the stick aloft and states, Hear you rebels. The Rashbam identifies the stick as the stick that constitutes a sign to the rebels. Although the Rashbam does not make the point, the text strongly supports this identification in another way as well. In reporting the accomplishment of God's command to take the stick, the Torah informs us that Moshe took the stick from in front of the Lord as God commanded. But the only stick located in front of the Lord is the one previously placed there, the staff of Aaron designed as a sign to the rebels and intended to put an end to the various complaints and murmurings of the people. Although the Rashbam does not expand extensively upon the significance of his identity, the Rashbam's theory roots the story of Memorivah in the context of the rebellion of Korach and its aftermath, the previous mention of the staff of Aaron. With this in mind, let us turn our attention to the aftermath of the rebellion. Following the initial suppression of the rebellion of Korach and his assembly, the swallowing up of the rebels' encampment and the death of the 250 Israelite princes while offering incense, the children of Israel confront Moshe and Aaron to voice a previously unheard complaint. Rather than being cowed into submission by the fire of God that consumed the incense bringers and the miraculous swallowing up of the Mishkan of Korach, Datan, and Abiram, defined by Moshe as a new creation of God, a way in which men have not died before, the people take umbrage at God's show of force. But not surprisingly, they blame Moshe and Aharon. The Torah informs us that the next day, all the congregation of Israel murmured against Moshe and Aharon. Without a trace of irony or introspection, they accuse Moshe and Aharon of having killed the people of the Lord. As opposed to quashing the rebellion, the show of force has caused it to spread. The rebellion now encompasses all the congregation, not just Korach and his cabal. 
The entire people is now disturbed by Moshe and Aharon's deadly leadership. God reacts harshly to this new complaint. For the second time in the larger rebellion narrative, God demands of Moshe to separate himself from this congregation so that he may destroy them. Once again, just as in the latter stages of the rebellion of Korach story, Moshe is forced to pray for the people. But this time, Moshe's prayers turn out to be insufficient. A plague had already begun amongst the people. By the time Aharon, urged on by Moshe, runs to the people and extinguishes the plague by offering incense while standing amidst the dying, over 14,000 have died. In direct contradiction of their claim about the deadly nature of Moshe and Aharon's leadership, the people witness Moshe and Aharon saving their lives. Yet, even this seems insufficient. In the final stage of the rebellion narrative, God commands a trial. The rules of the leadership test are such. Each tribe must place a staff inscribed with the name of its leader in the tent of meeting. The staff of Levi carries Aharon's name, and the tribe whose stick flowers will be the winner. By this means, God intends, as he phrases it to Moshe, to remove from upon me the complaints of the children of Israel. The complaints of death-dealing leadership are in fact complaints against the leadership of God. Apparently, what could not be accomplished by fantastic miracles, divine fire, the opening of the earth, plagues, and miraculous healing, is accomplished by a flowering stick. The staff of Aaron flowered, brought forth buds, blossomed, and yielded almonds. The rebellion ends, and the stick is placed back in the sanctuary as a sign for the rebels. The miracle of the staff is in some sense the opposite of the miracles of divine fire, the opening of the earth, and the plague. As opposed to turning life into death, it turns death into life. The dry wood of the staff springs back to life. It flowers, buds, and blossoms, giving forth almonds, where before only lifeless wood had been present. Along with Moshe and Aharon's quelling of the plague, it symbolizes the life-giving quality of their leadership. It is meant to show that God's leadership as manifested through Moshe and Aharon is in fact meant to lead to life. This interpretation of the miracle of the staff is strengthened by a parallel to the complaint narrative of Sefer Shemot. Besides being called a sign for rebels, in ordering Moshe to place the staff back in the tent of meeting in front of the testimony, God terms the stick a mishmeret. In this context, the term means something guarded or watched. Similarly, the story of the man, the sustenance provided by God which comprises the centerpiece of the complaint narrative of Shemot, contains the term mishmeret. Like the rebellion narrative of Sefer Bamidbar, the story of the man ends with the placing of an object in front of the testimony, as something guarded or watched. God orders Moshe to place a measure of man in front of the Lord, so that the people will see the bread that God fed them in the desert. The dual parallel between the measure of the man and the staff of Aharon suggests that the two placements serve similar purposes and the two objects embody similar messages, just as the miracle of the flowering staff was intended to put an end to the people's complaints regarding leadership in the rebellion narrative, so too the miracle of the man was intended to put an end to the people's complaints for food and water, for sustenance in the Shemot complaint narrative. Just as the measure of man, the first object placed before the testimony, or in other words, near the ark, symbolizes the miracle of life in the desert, of God's caring, provision, and sustenance, so too the second object, the staff of Aaron, symbolizes the miracle of life, the life-giving leadership of God as manifested through Moshe and Aaron. By this means, not through force and power is the rebellion quelled. It is this stick, the flowering stick, that Moshe is meant to take from before the Lord and hold in his hand while speaking to the rock. 
placing the story of Memriva in the context of Sefer Bamidbar and unpacking the symbolism of the stick that constitutes part of the stick and rock solution commanded by God highlights a crucial difference between the story of Memriva and the earlier stick and rock story, the events at Masa Umriva. At Masa Umriva, God commanded Moshe to take your stick with which you smote the river. First and foremost, the stick of the stick and rock solution at Masa Umriva is Moshe's stick. It is the staff already known in Sefer Shmot. Moreover, the stick is identified as the stick which smote the river. It is the stick that performed the plagues. Just prior to commanding Moshe to take his stick with which he hit the river in his hand, God commanded Moshe to pass in front of the people. In point of fact, God issues Moshe a four-part command. He is to pass in front of the people, taking along the elders of Israel, while holding the stick with which he smote the river in his hand. This procession will culminate with Moshe's hitting the rock. Apparently, the procession and the identity of the stick are crucial to the miracle and the lesson taught at Masam Riva. But what is the point of the parade and its central prop? In stressing the identity of the stick as the stick which smote the river, by referring to it as Moshe's, and by specifying that it be placed in the hand of Moshe, the Torah provides part of the answer to this question. A quick glance at the story of the first plague, the plague of blood, should help clarify things. After Paro's unsurprising manifestation of a hard heart and refusal to release the children of Israel, God orders Moshe to meet Paro at the river, holding in his hand the stick that turned into a snake, the stick previously used to demonstrate God's power. Moshe is to chastise Paro for his disobedience to God's word until this point, and to inform him that, By this you will know that I am the Lord. Finally, after his speaking to Paro, Moshe is to smite the river with the stick in his hand, turning it into blood. The fish will die, and all of Egypt will no longer be able to drink from the water. Although staged in private, the show put on for Paro's benefit is meant to be a show of force. Moshe chastises Paro for not knowing God and being obedient to his word. For his disobedience, stemming from his cognitive failure, Paro is smitten. In fact, Egypt is smitten. The river the very heart and life force of Egypt, a society uniquely dependent on the waters of the Nile, is smitten. It is turned into blood. The fish die, and Egypt can no longer drink from the water. But how long can the Egyptians and Egypt last without the waters of the river? The obvious symbolism of blood, the explicit death of the fish, and the reference to Egypt not drinking makes the point obvious. Further disobedience, refusal to know God, will result in further force in the death of Egypt. It is this stick that God specifically commands Moshe to take in his hand and parade before the people. Apparently, the demonstration of Asam Riva parallels the demonstration for Paro and Egypt at the river. It is a show of force and power, containing the underlying threat of violence, and even death. Moshe is to take the very same staff used to beat Egypt into submission and smite the rock, just as he smote the river. To complete the parallel, the stories are identical in purpose as well as object and action. Like the show of force for Paro and Egypt, the show of force at Masam Riva is meant to impart knowledge to resolve a cognitive deficit. The narrative of the story closes with the naming of the place where the incident occurred. It is named Masa Umriva. While the latter part of the name reflects the striving, the Riv of the children of Israel with Moshe, the former part of the name reflects Nasotam, their testing and questioning of God, their wondering whether God was amidst them or not. Despite God's redeeming them from Egypt and the crossing of the Yam Suf, despite God's provision of water and food until this point, and despite God's provision of the daily miracle of the man, the people still wonder whether God is amidst them. 
despite the education they have just been provided, the people do not know that God is with them. The extreme complaints at Masam Riva stem from this unjustified and unjustifiable lack of knowledge. Like the show of force at the river, the show of force at the rock is meant to provide a harsh lesson, to teach them a lesson that they have refused to learn. While power, force, and the threat of violence are certainly not desirable educational methods, the need to resort to this method at Masam Riva is understandable. In the narrative of Sefer Shmot, the children of Israel have just been redeemed from slavery. Power, force, and the threat of violence is unfortunately a language they have been trained all too well in. It is the mode of communication that they can understand. This brings us full circle, back to Meim Riva, the context of Sefer Bamidbar, and perhaps a fuller understanding of Moshe's failure to sanctify God. The children of Israel who arrive in Meim Riva in the 40th year of their desert sojourn are in fact a different people than the people redeemed from Egypt. While the new generation's complaints may be similar to the old generation's complaints, they are subtly different. While the complaint narrative of Sefer Shmot, which eventually culminates in the story of Masa Umriva, is primarily about base needs such as food and water, the rebellion narrative of Sefer Bamidbar, which eventually culminates in the story of Meim Riva, is about something slightly different. The larger rebellion narrative is also about direction, goals, and the destiny of a group that refers to itself as the people of the Lord, or often as the congregation of God. The narrative begins with the claim that all are holy, the statement by the rebels that God is amidst them, and the complaint against Moshe and Aharon's exclusive leadership over the congregation of the Lord. On a similar note, in the latter part of the narrative, the people complain that Moshe and Aharon are killing the people of the Lord. This trend reaches its conclusion at Memorivah. In this short story, the root kuf he lamid, meaning congregate or gather, appears seven times. Once again, the people refer to themselves as the congregation of the Lord and complain about their direction and destiny, the bad leadership they are subject to, and their impending death. What constitutes the solution to the crisis? The context of Sefer Bamidbar, the previous unfolding of the rebellion narrative, has already provided the answer. For the generation of Egypt, referred to seven times throughout the Masam Riva narrative as an Am, as a newly emergent nation barely more than a rabble of slaves, force and power constitute the right means. In contrast, for the new generation, the fire of God, the opening of the earth and miraculous plagues will not resolve the crisis. Only a demonstration of the life-giving and sustaining qualities of Moshe and Aharon's leadership will resolve the crisis. Only the sign of the flowering stick, or put differently, only persuasion, rather than force and power, can quiet the people. While for the Am, the newly redeemed slaves of Egypt, the symbolism of the staff of Moshe, the staff of power and force was necessary, for the new generation, the people that identifies itself as Kehal Hashem, the congregation of the Lord, an entirely different symbolism is in order. This generation requires the staff of Aharon, the staff symbolizing flowering life and the life-giving leadership of Moshe and Aharon. While the generation of Egypt required a show of force and Moshe's concomitant smiting of the rock, the new generation required reminding, persuasion, and the power of speech. By no accident, God commanded Moshe to grasp the staff of Aharon and to speak to the rock. To put this slightly differently, in accord with the needs and language of the new generation, God intends the events at Memriva to unfold as a reversal of the events at Masa where the culmination of the complaint narrative of Sefer Shmot, the story of Masa Umriva, confirms that the people understand no language other than power and force, the story of Sefer Bamibar is meant to reflect and lead to a new stage in the people's development. It is meant to help define a newly developed stage in which the people understand a new language. 
as Kehal Hashem, they understand the language of persuasion, of speech, of signs, and perceive through their own intuition the life-giving quality of Moshe Aaron's, and by implication, God's leadership. Consequently, God commands Moshe to grasp the appropriate symbol and speak to the rock. This was the Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of God intended at Memrivah, the teaching of the right lesson in the right way. God's leadership provides life rather than death. It rests upon persuasion rather than power. Yet this was not to be. Out of frustration at the people, exhausted from their complaints and faced with the near same circumstances as 38 years previously, Moshe berates the people. They are paro at the river, or they are the previous generation at Masam Riva. They do not know. They are rebels who understand nothing but power. Moshe hits the rock. But in doing so, although the people are certainly rebels, he commits a fatal mistake. He teaches the exact opposite lesson God intended. He uses the staff of Aharon just like the staff that smote the river. Without realizing, Moshe unwittingly undermines the lessons the new generation needs to learn. He sends the message that at the end of the day, the people are not incorrect. The leadership of Moshe and Aharon, and by implication God, rests not upon caring, sustenance, provision of life, and persuasion. Rather, it rests upon power, force, and the threat of death. In sum, Moshe sends the wrong message. For this truly tragic error, God strips Moshe and Aaron of their roles. For their failure to sanctify God and betrayal of God's agenda, Moshe and Aaron received the fate of the generation they led so faithfully for so many years. They too will not enter the promised land. That is reserved for a new generation and a new set of leaders.